Our scripture tonight is from John, chapters 1, verses 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. Well, for the last few weeks, we have been slowly making our way through the prologue of John's gospel, this theologically loaded passage that begins with this remarkable opening line. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. The novelist Ursula Le Guin says that first sentences are doors to worlds. Uh, they open up a portal to another reality, and that's exactly what John is doing. He's calling back to the creation story of the Hebrews and folding in the divine reason of the Greeks to say that this creative force that was there before the dawn of time, shaping the cosmos, bending chaos into order, the God who pushes back the darkness and put light in his place, that God is doing something new. John's been building this case for 13 verses, stacking image one on top of one another until we get to this. The word became flesh and lived among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. And that's not just a snappy one-liner to cap off an introduction. It's the hinge on which all of history turns. It's what Christmas is all about. The glory of heaven grounded in the stuff of earth. And as refined as John has been up until this point, describing the cosmic dimension of God's activity in the world, he is equally as gritty in describing his humanity. The word became flesh. It's a fascinating word choice. Uh, you see, there were, there were two options in ancient Greek uh, for the one English word, flesh. Uh, the words were soma and sarx, and both are used all throughout the Bible. Soma is generally cast in a positive light when it's used to describe the body. It's the body that is attractive or noble or young. The, the body that does what it's meant to do. You know, the 18-year-old body that can eat a cheeseburger with impunity. It's the word that the Apostle Paul used to describe the church 
as the body of Christ, each part doing what it should, working in harmony with the whole. Soma is the body disciplined to win an athletic event. It's, it's the body that moves with the grace of a dancer, the one that's chiseled in stone in a museum, the body that is good and beautiful. That's on one end of the spectrum. And then there's sarks on the other end. It's the same word that one uses to describe that same body which can be attractive, strong, and agile that is also subject to decay and illness and death. It's the body that will sag and discolor with age, the body that can be cut and bruised, the body that aches when it gets up in the morning, the one that growls with hunger, the one that burns in the throes of addiction. And so when John is describing God coming into the flesh, he intentionally chooses that second word. God chose to inhabit a body that could not escape entropy. And the truth is, most of the problems that we face in life are caused by flesh in this sense, by, by the ordinary, the sarks kind of flesh. It's because of the flesh that wars break out, nations become divided, that affairs and sexual exploitation happen. It's because of the flesh, the sarks, that we divide and we categorize people based on the pigmentation of their body. It's the flesh that gets disease. It's the flesh that becomes deformed. It's the flesh that dies. It's the flesh that turns desire in on itself that makes us incapable of giving love and also incapable of receiving love. And the gospel writer doesn't take his time to tell us that the, the word became a human or even that the word became a body. I mean, that would have been surprising in and of itself. But instead, he uses the most blunt instrument that his language will afford him. The word became sarks, became flesh. Now, suffice it to say, if you have been following John's majestic overture through the first movements, creation, new creation, light, pushing back the darkness, this is not the most intuitive place you would expect him to land, where he was poetic and lofty in his language before. He is decisively crass and earthy here. And it's difficult to understate how shocking this would have been to his first century hearers. See, John was a fellow uh, Jew, he was, a, he was a Jewish follower of Jesus, and he, he's writing to his fellow Jews who had such a high reverence for God that they wouldn't even utter, utter the divine name. Yahweh, he is saying, that God became flesh. But see, he's also doing a bit of cultural translation here, bringing the theological depth of the Hebrews to the Greco-Roman world, who ever since the days of Plato have been seeking wisdom and embracing a kind of spirituality that saw the ideal heavenly form as something distinct from and opposed to the body. They were all about escaping the body. And if we're honest, I think that's where we live most of the time. We long for a God who can deliver us from our struggle with the flesh, not for a God who takes up residence inside of it. And the shocking claim of Christmas is that God didn't remain abstract. He became personal. God knows you because he knows what it's like to inhabit flesh. But John goes even deeper than that. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that word dwelling in our English translations carries the same meaning as the Hebrew word used to describe the movable tent in which the glory of God became present to the people of, of Israel during the exodus from Egypt. 
And so John is connecting this story of the Exodus, this kind of highlight reel moment of Israel's history to the story of Jesus. God's glory, he says, it's present to us again. And glory is a word you will find peppered all throughout the Old Testament as a kind of a one-word summary of the weight, the, the greatness, the power of God. Only the high priest could enter into the tent and later into the holy of the holies to, in the temple and encounter the glory of God. And when he did that, it would involve this lengthy public ritual of shaving the body and purifying it from any sort of, uh, any sort of uncleanliness and putting on brand linen clothes that had never been touched by anyone else and, and the idea was that our flesh with all of its flaws and all of its sins that could not come into the presence of God and make it out in one piece Moses asked once if he could sneak a peek of God's glory look on God's face come into God's presence and God tells him flatly no if you do you will die it's too much for you you can't see me and keep breath in your lungs. So as the Old Testament kind of builds and builds, the phrase glory of God becomes also synonymous with the unknowability, the otherness, the mystery of God. God was powerful, present, sure. I mean, yeah, but knowable? He was powerful enough to part the Red Sea, but only Moses was the one who could talk to him. He, he was gracious enough, sure, to be with the people, but only the priests could enter into that presence. You see, John is telling us that that dwelling place, that bit of earth where God now chooses to dwell, is present among us. That cloud that guided Israel through the wilderness that surrounded the mountain so thick that if you were to step on the trailhead, you wouldn't make it out in one piece. That glory that Moses wanted to see but couldn't see it because he would die, it would stop his heart. That glory has come again, but it's no longer in a cloud or in a building. It has become present in the flesh of a peasant child born to an ordinary family in a humble stable outside of a rural town. Glory has a name. It's become personal and knowable. This glory, John writes, I've seen it. This voice that, that spoke creation into being, I've heard it. This presence of God that Moses couldn't see, I know his name. He knows mine. You see, glory isn't in a tabernacle anymore. It's in a person. He's got dust on his feet. He's got calluses on his hand. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. Pete Gregg, a pastor in London, summed it up in two words. Dirty Glory. I love that. The unfathomable glory of God got dirt in the creases of his hands he, as he apprenticed in his father's shop. He went on to place dirt on the eyes of the blind to give them sight. He, he scribbled some words in the dirt to an adulterous woman caught in her sin to let her know that she wasn't condemned but was instead forgiven. And he wiped the dirt away from his disciples' feet on the very night when one of them would betray him and all of them would abandon him. He was not afraid to get his hands dirty or his heart get broken. The people whom the religious leader branded as dirty, he touched them as well. He broke bread at the table of tax collectors. He reached out his hands to the diseased and the tormented. He, he took the hand of a girl who died and breathed life into her body. No one can see the glory of God and live to tell the tale. That's what Moses told them. 
And in a way, he was right. Because everyone who saw this glory in disguise, this dirty glory made personal, fell to their face completely undone by it. That face, made of ordinary flesh, those eyes with bags under them because the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. A few verses later, John drives home the point. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. This was the glory of God in the stuff of earth, made present not to overwhelm you, but to draw you in to make God known and the miracle of Christmas is that God coming in the flesh to find you he did it just so he could bring you home fourth century theologian Athanasius of Alexandria wrote one of the earliest declarations of the of the incarnation he became what we are that we might become what he is participants in the divine nature The word became flesh, and that also means this, that glory took on flesh so that flesh might be made to reveal glory. And his glory looks like grace and truth. Now, grace is one of the most familiar words we have in the New Testament. In John's gospel, there's a straight line from the grace that Jesus has come to offer and the joy that he has come to bring. He tells his disciples later, I have said these things to you so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. He tells the religious leaders, I have come that they may have life and have it in its fullness. That is the kind of grace he brings. The glory of God is not out to get you. It is out to set you free. And it raises the question, if Jesus has come to bring joy, he's come to bring abundant life, then that means that life on our own terms is something less than the way that leads to joy. And so Jesus' aim is not to restrain your freedom, but to actually set you free, to give you grace upon grace. And then there's truth, which as a concept feels like it's been walking around with a limp and a bloody lip in our cultural moment. Most of the time when we say true, though, we we mean it like a proposition, like gravity, or like a set of facts that you can falsify or verify. But it's also true in the sense of a ship lost at sea using a compass and true north to find your bearings. The compass tells you the truth by pointing to the one thing that helps you navigate everything else around you to get you home. And the grace and truth that Jesus offers are meant to give you life in its fullness, which means you got to ask, is the life you're living true enough to get you where you want to go? Is it bringing out the best parts of you? Or is it just ginning up all the places in you that you'd rather not expose to the light of glory? And there's no judgment here because we've all got to deal with this flesh. We're all after joy, but we all find ourselves using different maps, lost at sea. And most of the maps we use are not full of grace and truth. But see, John is staking the claim here that the way that produces joy is not found in an enlightened moment of spiritual ecstasy or, or in, a, in, a, in a life dedicated to the pleasure principle or climbing the ladder of success or unfeeling adhe- adherence to some sort of moral code. It is found in a person. It is to know and live in relationship with the God who became flesh in the person of Jesus. 
You see, Advent builds and builds until we finally get to this. The God who fashioned the coral reefs and the, and the canyons chose to inhabit flesh in a dirty stable. The, the voice which spoke creation into existence also spoke with a rural Galilean accent. The, the God who breathed life into humanity ventured his first, first breath among peasant parents who would go on to become refugees. The one whose name is above every other name was humble enough to take on a common name, Jesus. And it was a name that would be lauded by some and loathed by others. Power, capable of bringing light into darkness, also chose to surrender to that darkness. All because he loved you and me enough to be with us to claim victory against the darkness and offer it back to us as a gift. The glory of God chose to be made known. The word became flesh so he could know us in all of our weaknesses and all of our frailty and to make God known in all of his glory. And it's really easy to miss this. It's very easy for us to get behind the idea of the glory of God coming to shine into light into the dark, into the broken soil of the world. But when that same light turns its focus on the dark and dirty places inside of us, well, it's hard to imagine a God who wants to get close to that. We have this nagging sense that if God really knew what was going on inside of this flesh, he would not want to get his hands dirty. It's easy to imagine God with us when life is going well, when I'm performing a certain degree of moral virtue, when I've gotten myself cleaned up, when things are generally trending up and to the right on my life graph. God with us, sure, when everything's good. But the word became flesh means the exact opposite of that. That this is a God who identifies with us in our weaknesses, in our vulnerabilities, in the incomplete hand that we have been dealt. These hearts of ours that are made of flesh, corrupted by sin, they're like a broken compass needle, resistant to grace, insisting that there's always got to be some system by which we get what we deserve. But Jesus' heart is uncorrupted by sin. It's drawn to us. And it's strong in us to pull our hearts back to the Father. You see, an unknown God who watches from a distance he might sympathize with our weakness, but he can't do anything to heal them. But Jesus shows us a God who walked our roads in life, who felt hunger and loneliness, who knew what it was like to weep bitter tears when a friend died. He knew the agony of injustice, the sting of betrayal, but he also knew our joy. He had friends whom he loved he delighted in receiving children. He loved a good dinner party or a wedding feast. He even knew how to keep the party going when there was no more wine. Which means that the healer has experienced the very conditions that you are dealing with. Tempted in every way yet without sin. That's what the writer of Hebrews claims. He wrapped himself in the human experience, but he didn't get lost in it. He came to show you the way home. See, the one who knows us in our weakness knows what it's like to be resurrected, knows what it's like to ascend to the Father, knows what it's like for the kingdom to come in glory and power. Jesus is God's glory. 
powerful enough to end your suffering, humble enough to step into it with you. And the grace of Christmas is that the glory of God got dirty. It found you in the flesh all so it could walk you home. And the thing is, when you come into contact with this glory, it's not going to kill you on the spot. But there are parts of you that won't make it out alive. Only now because this glory of God taking on flesh is all the ways that we try to hide, all the false selves we try to put on, all the roads and detours to joy that cannot deliver on their promise. None of that can look God in the face and live. And friends, that is grace. Not long after his swirling declaration of the God who came in dirty glory, John summed it up like this in a letter he wrote to the church. God is love. And whoever dwells in love dwells in God, and God dwells in him. That is the God made known in Jesus. God is love. God is for you. He is willing to get down in the dust to find you. So if you're here, you're not really sure why you're here. Regardless of the language you might use to describe your belief or unbelief, if the God that I just described is not the God that you know, then you need to know that this is the one who loves you who is for you, who will stop at nothing to find you. He knows you, and I hope you'll get to know him. And if you're here and you do know this God, then you know it's too good to stay in here. It needs to be experienced. You see, Jesus was not afraid to get his hands dirty. He was not afraid to get his heart broken. And if you follow him long enough, you'll find that that same thing is true of you. You'll find yourself drawn to the broken and the vulnerable You see, Jesus took on flesh, which is a way of saying he transformed even these bodies and made them capable of reflecting his glory. Dirty glory. It's how God chose to be made known. It's the only kind of glory there is. As we pass the candles in just a few moments, let them be a symbol to you that the light that we have The light that pierces the darkness came to be a light with us. We have seen his glory. And for those who long for glory, you have only to receive it. This is your true calling. Friends, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in light will never walk in darkness. So as our candle lighters come forward, I want you to take the lit candle, turn your unlit candle toward it as a way of receiving the light. You friends, you were made to bear the glory of God. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Amen.